Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome back to Deep State Radio. I'm Rosa Brooks, and I'm standing in once again as host for David Rothkopf, who remains uh, in his bunker, hunkered down, fearful of nuclear apocalypse, as the rest of you should be, too. Um, I am joined, however, once again in our tiny podcast studio on the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK by Alice Hunt Friend uh, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in the International Security Program. Joining us from Chicago is Corey Shockey, who has fled from California because it is closer to the North Korean North Korean missiles. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly right. I saw Jeff's plots of the range of the tests, and I just moved a little. You thought it'd be better eastward. to move closer to the middle of the country. No, that Try was very Mar-a-Lago. wise. Um, uh, <laughs> no we thanks. Also have... I'll take nuclear war instead, Jeff. <laughs> Well, we also have Jeffrey Lewis uh, joining us by phone from vulnerable California. Uh, Jeffrey Lewis is otherwise known as Arms Control Wonk, and he is at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Um, And I wanted to come right back to the topics that we were talking about uh, in our last podcast. Uh, We were talking about North Korea. We were talking about what the advice is likely to be to Donald Trump from his generals, as he always calls them, my generals. Um, and, and Corey, I am assuming, and please tell me that you think I'm right about this, I'm assuming that when Donald Trump runs around saying locked and loaded, fire and fury, that Secretary Mattis and General McMaster and, and Chief of Staff Kelly uh, and and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Dunford, are all saying soothing things to him like, oh, Mr. President, not a good idea to have a war with North Korea. Let's work on this diplomacy thing. Really bad idea to have a war with North Korea. Please tell me that I'm right. (laughs) I don't have any particular insight into the cabinet conversations with the president on this, but I do think the Secretary of Defense has been quite clear about the enormous human cost and um, devastation that would result from a war with North Korea. I noticed, though, that the National Security Advisor, General McMaster, is being uh, less contained. Uh, Two data points uh, in support of that. The first is that in one of his TV interviews, when asked about the damage to South Korea, should the president make good on his threats, uh, General McMaster said President Trump was elected to protect the American people. Good point. Yeah, Uh, too bad for the Koreans. Koreans. Uh, Yeah, tough luck if you're Korea. Is the message Such that a that good time sent. to be a U.S. ally? Right now. <laughs> right. uh, and I'm sure allies all over the world were took comfort in that. Took comfort in that statement. The second thing that I noticed 
um, is that the op-ed piece that the secretaries of state and defense wrote emphasizing the diplomatic and economic lead on strategy in North Korea and trying to lay out a cohesive strategy on North Korea was not also signed by the National Security Advisor. That may not mean there is any policy difference in between them, but I think the difference that I see in the approach of the different parts of the Trump administration is that the White House is wrestling with how do we restore the credibility of deterrent threats? And I, I believe I see a pattern in which the secretaries of defense and state, we'll recall the secretary of state said Americans should sleep comfortable at night, despite the North Korean threat, mm. they're more, they appear to me more confident that a deterrent threat consisting of uh, telling the North Koreans that any attack on the United States or its allies would result in the end of the North Korean regime. I think the cabinet members of state and defense seem to have more confidence in the deterrent value of that than the White House does. Alice, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think that's fair because it's very clear, and, and Jeffrey can correct me if I'm wrong, but the the goal of the regime is, in fact, to survive, and that's what its nuclear weapons are for. Um, and so to say the use of your nuclear weapons would result in the, the end of your regime, uh, and we're very, very clear about that, that should be deterring to Kim Jong-un. And Kim Jong-un is simply saying in, in return, that's fine, but now I have these nuclear weapons to to hold things that you value at risk. And so I feel I'm on a peer-to-peer -peer level with you now. And that that's the new strategic relationship we're in. This seems definitely so like I would North just Korea emphasize, is winning. I would just emphasize that the secretaries of state and defense did not single out nuclear weapons use. They... They no, emphasize no, they that any act of aggression by the North Koreans. And I actually think that's an important distinction because it seems to me that a central element of our strategy now that North Korea is a nuclear weapons state, a central element of our strategy needs to be deterring their use. Because mm -hmm. as Rosa just pointed out, we have failed at deterring their acquisition. And so we need a fallback plan. And I think in my judgment, the fallback plan is trying to diminish the political value to them of the acquisition of nuclear weapons by emphasizing that any, any violence, any war that North Korea starts will be the end of their regime. Yeah, that's right. And that, I think Matt, Secretary Mattis also said that in his initial statement that he issued, I think, over the weekend as well. And it's bolstered by that. Well, PC did so, so let me pose a an ethics and civil military relations question to all of you. Um, I, you know, it's a, a a truism in this country that we we believe in civilian control of the military. Uh, that at the end of the day, the president was elected by the American people, um, uh, and the. Uh, senior people in the Pentagon, the senior people in the State Department were not elected by the American people. They're presidential appointees. Um, uh, and we all believe that in ordinary circumstances, when a superior officer gives an order, subordinates are supposed to obey it. And we believe that when the most su superior of all, the civilian commander in chief of the armed forces, gives an order that the military is supposed to obey it. And, and we're all uh, appropriately shocked and horrified at the idea that uh, 
that of that not happening. Um, but but let me play out a hypothetical that that you know I two years ago I would have thought was completely unimaginable. But but I I'm not so sure anymore. You know, let let's assume that that cooler heads do not prevail. That no amount of people trying to explain to President Trump how catastrophically awful uh, a conflict with North Korea would be, none of that persuades him. That Kim Jong Un says something, you know, thumbs his nose, says something defamatory. Fox News covers it. Uh, you know, the North Koreans are all thumbing their noses visibly at Trump, and Trump says, "That's it. I don't care what anybody says." Um, I'm going to teach them a lesson uh, and, you know, launch the nuclear weapons. And and he, of course, has the requisite codes. He's the commander in chief. And he sends that order to whatever mysterious underground bunker Stratcom maintains somewhere or other. Um, what should the recipient of that order do? The recipient of that order should launch American the American attack. You know, our military doesn't get to choose which orders they carry out, provided those orders are legal. And and the elected president of the United States has rank over them. They don't get to decide which of his orders are appropriate and which aren't, unless they are overtly illegal, which this order would not be. I really it would, it would think violate, probably that violate international law, law, needless to say. Uh, you know, we could have a debate about whether any American president ever had the moral or legal standing to launch a nuclear attack. And that's an interesting and important discussion. But a lot of what I hear debated on this issue is specific to President Trump. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a really dangerous direction to go to, to suggest that the American military or appointed civilian leadership uh, should be able to supersede the direction of the commander-in-chief I, I really think that's a dangerous direction to go to. So my colleague Scott Sagan at Stanford and, and I wrote a paper on looking at how the United States military approaches issues of nuclear targeting, uh, and in particular, um, whether we felt all of the legal interpretations would qualify as, as mainstream. And I think the big thing I took away from that is, you know, I have that same kind of reluctance that, that Corey expressed. Um, which is, you know, and and I think uh, General Kaler, uh, who was involved in this project, would express this frequently, that you need good order and discipline. And so while, yes, uh, you know, troops should only obey lawful orders, uh, you really don't want to find yourself in a position where people are making that decision, um, you know, sort of fairly randomly and, and on a partisan basis. So, I, you know, the place we came out was, and, and frankly, I think Trump is, is a helpful phenomenon for this discussion, is it's your planning, right? That the, it's the work you do in advance in terms of thinking through scenarios and coming up with targeting plans that are, uh, you know, consistent with, uh, you know, the best interpretations of the law of armed conflict and international humanitarian law. Um, so, you know, I mean, not to overly pitch the article, but, you know, we have some concerns with some choices they make. And we think that, you know, perhaps one of the things that as a matter of policy, we should decide is not to use nuclear weapons when a conventional weapon would do. 
Um, but yeah, I think if it gets as far as the scenario you described, it's 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 really hard to imagine somebody sitting in a bunker with limited access to information, second guessing the president. Well, I I I mean, so 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 there, I guess there are two pieces that we could talk about. You know, one, and I don't want to get too down in the weeds um, on the the legal pieces. One would be the the argument that. Uh, arguably a, preempt- a preemptive nuclear strike um, against North Korea would violate international law, uh, uh, both in terms of aggressive action, but also in terms of uh, if it is possible to use conventional weapons to achieve the same purposes that the the inherently indiscriminate nature of nuclear weapons uh, would violate uh, international humanitarian law principles regarding the avoidance of unnecessary suffering, distinction between combatants and civilians and so on, and that they would expose anybody who obeyed an order to preemptively use nuclear weapons to criminal liability for committing war crimes, uh, and that it would be a manifestly unlawful order, at least in certain circumstances, which would create a duty to disobey. disobey. I mean, I think the problem- Has any American administration ever adopted that view? No, but the problem is, of course, and I I think you're right. I mean, Corey, the the problem is, you know, once you start second, once you start saying the military gets to start second guessing, uh, you're going down a pretty slippery slope. Um, Alice, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you're also asking the guy in the silo or the two guys in the silo, actually, to interpret international law. And it's also U.S. law, right? This is part of some of it is and some of it isn't. Right. So that's the other thing is I'm trying to think, how does this trickle down into the Uniform Code of Military Justice and which laws does the average missileer understand to be illegal? Um, And, you know, I I'm with Corey and, you know, in principle and pragmatically, we don't those guys in the silo don't actually know the broader context, and that's the point. Well, so let me push you guys a little harder, though, right? So maybe I maybe I gave an overly generous hypothetical. Maybe Donald Trump, or it doesn't have. Let's take it out from Donald Trump, right? Because I don't I don't think it should be a partisan issue. But but let me let me pose the following hypothetical: um, a hypothetical U.S. president uh, in the future does seem to go nuts. He, he, his behavior suggests that he's crazy. He's, had, he's had a psychotic break. He's had a psychotic break for whatever reason. Um, it, and, wait, and you're and saying he, this is not Donald I'm Trump. I'm saying this is not Donald Trump. I'm saying completely hypothetical president <laughs> gives every appearance of having had a psychotic break. <laughs> and one morning he gets on national television and he says, I don't like the North Korean hairstyles. And, and I'm, I'm president for them. life. And I'm president for life and I'm going to nuke them. Right. Um, and I hereby order the U.S. military to strike targets throughout North Korea. Um, is there any circumstance in which are, are you are you so hardline on the civilian control of the military? You know, no matter what, um, or is there is there any set of circumstances in which you would say the ethical military officer must say? I'm sorry, I can't obey that order. I think the ethical military officer disobeys and understands that he's going to be court-martialed later. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I think that's how you square but the, that the, circle. The, the jury lets him off because nuclear apocalypse has been. Well, avoided. you know, I, or or no, <laughs> or you, no, you get you get punished, but you know your your reward is not being the jerk Demotion who started the nuclear rank. holocaust. Right, and your reward you know. is that is that is that we're know, all still here, we're all still yeah. alive, life, and you're life in jail. Stinks and but is unfair sometimes. So, so I, mean, I think it is absolutely true that um, that we are all moral actors, 
And we all have to take responsibility for our ethical choices. This is what a few good men my, teaches us, Corey. My yes. guess is that most of the people who would view themselves as a, a better ethical arbiter of the nation's well-being than its elected leadership are, my guess is most of those people are screened out in the process of selection for nuclear missileers. I think that's probably um, correct. I mean, I think as, because, a, as a practical so matter, I think that's probably right. Because I think, you know, it's an important discussion. The ethics and legality of nuclear weapons use are really important discussion. The place to have that discussion is not in the moment at which yep. you decide whether or not to obey an order. Well, so does right? this like, mean? Does this mean though that we should be that Trump is frighteningly close enough to my <laughs> ridiculous hypothetical that we should be rethinking the way we structure the authority to use nuclear weapons? Yeah, and obviously, why we not? Have, yeah. Oh, oh, you don't think so? I see. I would, I would okay. say, why not require a second vote? I mean, we have a system now that is designed for speed and decisiveness, and does not require a second vote. Because then we have a um, unity of command problem. Is the issue with that? Well, well, okay. Yeah. So wait, let's let's just take a. I, it's not perfect, but I don't know. I I would problem. feel better if Mattis or. Tillerson had to had to also sign off. I would feel a okay, lot better. Okay, but let's reverse this circumstance. Right. Let's take the Eisenhower administration where you have an eminently sensible and war-tested president and you have Curtis LeMay yeah. um, in the loop making decisions as well as the president. Uh, so the second vote doesn't, doesn't ensure a second cautionary well, it doesn't ensure anything, but but it maybe increases the likelihood of caution. I mean, I mean, I mean, obviously, our system was designed for primarily for defensive purposes on the theory that, uh oh, what if we only have you know eight minutes? We we suddenly discover the Soviets have launched. Uh, we have eight minutes to respond. The president doesn't have time to convene anybody. He just has to make a decision. Uh, we can't wait. Until he can, and, you know, some and the by right the people. way, those circumstances right. still That's, pertain, and those, right. and those circumstances still pertain. Absolutely. Um, on the other hand, I, you know, I, I wonder. I mean. I wonder whether that's such a good idea. I mean, do we in a world in which the president could misuse that a president for any number of reasons, whether crazy or crazy ideology or anything else for preemptive strikes? Would we want would we want to do? I mean, this is something obviously their legislation introduced in Congress uh, by, I guess, Ted Lieu and uh, and Senator Markey. Uh, to require for any non-defensive use, a vote of Congress, for instance. Um, is that a good idea, Jeffrey? I, you know, I don't, I don't love the idea of a vote of Congress. I, Corey actually talked me out of this stuff as a. <laughs> <laughs> it's Corey's fault. There's the reveal, deep state listeners. Oh, I did have the privilege of teaching Jeffrey Lewis. I mean, I generally take the view. Corey, that, I thought you were that... only twenty-three. <laughs> of course, Jeffrey's only. Seven, she might have been so twenty-three that's... when she was teaching. I don't know. It's it's been a while ago. Please continue with your argument, Doctor Lewis. <laughs> yeah. I, so I, you know, I I think that you know Congress mostly is good at kind of drawing attention to problems, and I I don't really want to count on them to act. So I don't I don't necessarily agree with the particular mechanism proposed by the by the Marky Lou bill, but at the same time. 
Um, you know, I do think that we we are always making choices about the ability to retaliate versus the risk that 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 those weapons get used in a in a way that that we will come to regret. And so, you know, I, I feel like that that bill it, it, it's a good way of drawing attention to this problem. I think you know the popular impression is that it takes two votes, which is crazy because it doesn't. Uh, and so I appreciate the fact that Congress is drawing attention to this problem. Um, I, I I would prefer this be kept in the executive branch. Um, but I'm I'm okay with mind, running a little bit of a greater risk. the Secretary risk. of Defense into the loop here. <laughs> yeah, I mean so, I'm I'm okay with the extra risk of a, of of being decapitated in exchange for for a, a, a slightly longer consideration of such issues. So hmm. my guess is that uh, it would be an unconstitutional infringement on the role of the commander in chief. Um, uh, but we have a. A lawyer in our midst, Dr. Brooks. Uh, you know, uh, there's, there's no, answer to, there's no question. answer to that question. These are political before questions. Hand, before I hand it over to you, we do have a precedent on this, though, which is President Eisenhower addressed this very issue in the mid-1950s. And he wrote in his diary that he did not believe he had the power as president of the United States to conduct a preemptive attack on the Soviet nuclear weapons, even if he saw they were about to be launched, because it would require a declaration of war by the Congress. Yeah, yeah. So no, there's I, a very I, powerful I, I, example of somebody who did not take the commander-in-chief's responsibilities lightly and who believed that he lacked the power to conduct a preemptive strike against an imminent nuclear mm -hmm. attack on the United States without Congress declaring war. I mean, Rosa, what you're really getting at with your question is, do we feel comfortable relying on the military to be essentially a check on our ability to govern ourselves or a judgment in the process of governing ourselves. I, I don't even think yeah, that's also, a nice way to formulate it, Alice. Yeah, and also that maybe nuclear weapons are different. So the rest yeah, of the time, the answer yeah. is absolutely not. Right, right. But you're suggesting that there are cases in which, well, which essentially is sort of this whole administration, well, the, right? The We're irony. all getting a lot more comfortable with recently retired and active duty yeah. generals in positions that don't they don't normally I, occupy. I don't even think and it's that's okay because about, of the context. About having the military be a check or uh, or a bulwark or anything, as opposed to having somebody, someone, right? Because there's a peculiar irony here. Um, if Donald Trump or any other U.S. president wants to send five army medics to North Korea or anywhere else, <laughs> right? Yeah, he can't, he can't right. get them there unless he goes through Mattis. Now, he can fire Mattis if Mattis says no. You know, he can get a new secretary of defense. He can fire Mattis and give the order to the deputy secretary and so on and so forth on down the chain. But he can't press a button and teleport those guys there, right? right? right. He can't. He has to go through um, a deployment no orders, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Right. No matter, no matter how, you know, anodyne, no matter how innocuous, no matter how low risk it is, he cannot get a single American soldier, sailor, airman, or Marine anywhere without having to have a conversation with his secretary of defense, Right. Gee, General Mass, I'd like to do this. Well, Mr. President, I'm not sure that's such a good idea. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, fine. Yes, sir. Um, you know, it may not last more than a few seconds, but it's got to have that conversation. Whereas 
the president of the United States has the power and authority given our current policies and procedures, leave aside the law, just the, 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 the procedure that we have set up is that the president, without having to consult a single other human being, has the authority to launch nuclear weapons that could kill millions, right? Without having to have, you know, he doesn't even have to have that three-second yeah. conversation. What do well, you think, Jim? Is this launch, a good idea? He can launch war for 90 right. days also without consulting Well, no, anybody. he can't. No, he can't, right? Because other – except a nuclear war. There is no kind of war except a nuclear war that does not require him as a practical matter. This is not about constitutional law. This is just as a practical matter. Mm-hmm. As a practical matter, there's no button you push to start the war without having to talk to any other humans. You know, I see. There is something that he can do. He can start a nuclear war. So, so the least destructive things that he can do require him to have those conversations with several other people, most notably his defense secretary. The most destructive, risky, and dangerous thing does not require that, but this which is seems like an odd irony. This is the inherent problem of nuclear that weapons is, is that it relies right. on the judgment of the one wielding right. the weapon. Precisely. And, and, and here can we, we are. afford that? I mean, Jeffrey, is that a sane system? I mean, it made a lot of sense to me when we were genuinely worried about a Soviet attack And when we elected presidents of both parties that I thought, no matter how much I might disagree with them on policy issues, were were very reasonable and good people. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I I, I took a lot of guff because I was I was defending George W. Bush for continuing to read the pet goat on (laughs) 9-11 because I I think it was the right decision. It was a good book. Well, I mean, you know, you want to find out how it ends. I would too. Well, ah, it's unfair. You know, he didn't want to panic. <laughs> he wanted to to not, you know, there were cameras on him. He knew it was a serious situation. He wanted to take so his time. He I'm sorry, to kids, understand. the goat can go to hell. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, you know, I, 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 you know, I, people, people mocked it, right? But I Those actually like think he wanted to take now, his time and he wanted to think through and he didn't want to do anything rash and he didn't, you know, and, and now that I see the guy who would have thrown the book across the room and like rushed out of the, the room, I, I, I'm persuaded. So, you know, I feel like, I mean, the thing about Trump that really gets me is he, he, you know, he really calls into the question, this idea that the election is, is this kind of check. And, and if the election's not a check, then eh, I, uh, I want to put something else in place. Maybe not Marky Lou, but I, I like the idea that SecDef has, has got to be a second vote. You know, it, you can't, it can't be one or the other. It's got to be both. But I also, you know, I think we're, I mean, God forbid I'm going to defend Donald Trump, but, um, <laughs> you know, we are, is being recorded. we are making a, a, you know, um, arguments, I think based on the assumption that we think he's, he actually is not rational. And I don't, I don't think we have evidence of that. I think what we had evidence of is that he doesn't understand the scope of his office. And he doesn't yet understand that when he says things casually, that especially if he's talking about nuclear weapons or in other realms, that they have real consequences. And so he can't just shoot his mouth. And I think he's not used to living in that world and he has not adjusted. But I don't think that ipso facto means that he's not rational either and that, you know, he's 10 seconds away from launching a nuclear weapon. But, um, I, you know, I might be stand. This cheese might stand alone. <laughs> I very sincerely hope that you so are right. Honest, well, let me let me uh, walk us all back from the from the constitutional ledge here um, and turn away from what I think is a fascinating legal and ethical question. Uh, as well as a fascinating question just about how we structure our our 
our architectures, right? Because as I said before, you don't have to you don't have to bind the president's hands legally in order for executive branches to decide to add in an extra layer of consultation as a matter of practice just to make it a little bit harder and the sort of tying yourself to the mast is something that the president presidents can do themselves and once you set up that architecture it's actually not that easy for an individual president to undo it or undo it quickly um but moving away from that um can we let's just spend a few minutes uh talking more generally about the the state of nuclear proliferation in the world today because North Korea Happy news, everybody. North Korea is not the only state that has nuclear weapons or nuclear aspirations. Um, And if we can revert for a moment back to the uh, axis of evil, so beloved of the president who read My Pet Goat. Um, Jeffrey, what's going on in Iran? Uh, Why is is President Trump seem to be so determined to kill the Iran deal? Uh, And would it be a good thing or a bad thing if he succeeded? I I think if you like North Korea's nuclear armed ICBM, you're going to love killing the Iran deal. Ooh. I mean, I, I have this the worst possible idea. I think, you know, as best I understand the dynamic, uh, it's that the president said it was the worst deal in history. And it aggravates him that every 90 days he has to certify that the Iranians are complying. Um, and I think they really don't like having to do that. Um, and so it seems like there have now been these two enormous showdowns where Tillerson and McMaster have, have tried to persuade the president to, to go through with the certification and they've won. I'm fairly freaked out that we're going to do this for the next three and a half years, that we're going to go into this meeting with the president outraged about the situation, uh, and they're going to talk him off the ledge. Um, so I, you know, I'm worried about it. I, I I I don't. It is not the greatest deal in history. It is a very incomplete deal. Um, but having watched how things have developed in North Korea, um, I'm all for deals that are 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 better than unconstrained proliferation. So, uh, so Corey, Corey, you're our I, resident historian. I think that's is it the worst deal in history? <laughs> no, it's not the worst deal in history. Um, it's not a terrific deal, um, but it's important in two ways. The first is that it does, for the space of 10 years and more, give us restrictions on known Iranian nuclear facilities, um, and that's a non-trivial achievement. And it allows challenge inspections of non-declared sites. Um, The second thing it gives us is a whole lot of knowledge over the course of those 10 years about the Iranian nuclear programs. And the third thing it gets us is um, us not having to carry out a policy that neither the Obama nor, in my judgment, the Trump administration actually wants to carry out, which is preempting the Iranian nuclear programs. I think we were in a really dangerous position for the last several years of saying we wouldn't tolerate a nuclear-armed Iran and we were going to destroy their programs if we didn't get a deal because I think the credibility gap was so yawningly large that it was actually extraordinarily damaging to us. So bringing our policy into alignment with what we're actually doing is a non-trivial benefit of the Iranian nuclear agreement. I hope it stays in place. 
Um, I think the president, uh, if I were betting my own money, I would bet that the president will leave it in place for a couple mm. of reasons. Uh, one is that I think his reaction to it, his petulance, is because he staked out a stupid position that he's now isolated on as the real-world consequences of walking away from an agreement when our European allies are not going to reimpose sanctions on Iran. Um, and so the policy he adopts would be, as Jeff rightly pointed out, ineffectual. Um, so I think what we're seeing is President Trump's petulance that, that the real world isn't comporting with his fantasy land. Um, you see the same kind of reaction from him over Afghanistan strategy. Um, it, and I begin to wonder whether what the president isn't doing is making, you know, uh, loud statements of policy that he then makes no effort to bring into effect, hoping that his supporters won't notice that he didn't actually make any changes on transgenders. Uh, representation in the military or the Iranian nuclear agreement or anything else, that they notice the tweets and not the policies. <laughs> Alice, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> as the academics would say, uh, Trump, Donald Trump has a real principal agent problem. Um, he likes to say, this is what we're going to do. And then he likes to turn his back and assume that his agents are going to do the thing. Uh, and in case after case, it turns out that we have a divided government and we have a lot of uh, fractious uh, groups that have different opinions. And so they're going to fight, you know, tooth and nail. And since he himself takes no leadership or follow up on these things in any detailed way, he's losing a lot of these policy battles, well, right? It's more and more than I, that. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to think his government is his government. So when they don't do right. what he well, says, or, or he just uh, certainly his party his is his Twitter, party. Yeah. And he just walks away saying, oh, I wonder why the Justice Department didn't do such and such. Or I want. So maybe so, he's just going to tweet about nuclear Well, so what, I, you know, I worry that the ball is sort of in the Iranians court and that, you know, at some point did they come to the conclusion that he's alienated us from our European allies and the European allies are boxed into a position. Um, and he has made all of these pronouncements about our not having good faith in the in the Iranian deal. And the Iranian, do the Iranians at some point decide that it's actually better for them to back out mm -hmm. um, because they have also uh, observed the consequences of North Korea, um, Libya, et cetera, and they have decided, you know what, we were on the right track, and this deal is not as solid as we thought it was, and it, you know, it, it's in our interests not to follow through. I hope that's not the choice they'll make. Because I do think that the president would have a lot of trouble actually uh, implementing a rollback of the policy. So probably Corey is right. Um, but I do sort of worry that the the way that this president governs or does not govern um, gives a lot of strategic opportunity to adversaries and, the, you know, they're going to use it. Time doesn't stand still. And I, I do think he wants to go back in time. He wishes that he could go back to a time when there was no Iran deal. And, of course, that is not possible. So we only have a few minutes left in this podcast, and 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 Jeffrey, um, I thought I would ask you, uh, what else should we be worried about? What's and particularly what's the impact? Um, what what is the takeaway that other states have from watching the unfolding drama on Iran between Iran and the U.S. between North Korea and the U.S. Uh, you, do, are we are we entering an era in which we think that the 
the balance is going to shift for a lot of states into thinking from thinking no point in me trying to develop nuclear weapons. It's a bad idea. It's just destabilizing to thinking, well, maybe I need maybe we need to. Yeah, I think there are a lot of a lot of trends intersecting there. So it's a little hard to separate them. I mean, we are in this weird world where it's so much easier to build nuclear weapons and really fancy missiles than it was 20 years ago. You know, I mean, just the technology diffusion is so great that we, you know, in the past we used to rely on like, we won't let you do it. And now it's sort of like, well, we kind of have to like persuade you not to do it. So I, there's the risk that it's just harder to control. Um, and I do like, I, I don't know, you know, it's the easiest thing in the world when you are politically opposed to a president to sort of cherry pick anecdotes from your friends abroad and say that, you know, well, this president is unnerving our allies and I, you know, I don't want to get sucked into that, but like, holy crap, are my friends abroad freaked out? <laughs> um, you know, and I, it's not, it's not like it was in the past. I mean, it just feels really different. And so I presume that that's going to make a difference to states decision-making, but you know, it's fairly anecdotal and I don't want to over predict. So I, I put myself at like worried that our tools for preventing proliferation aren't as good and our assurances aren't as valuable. Um, but, you know, maybe we'll get lucky and muddle through. Um, are, have we lost interest in Pakistan? I thought for a while we were all hysterical about Pakistan and we were worried about loose nukes and we were worrying about the Pakistani military losing control of Pakistan. Because I mean, talk, about, talk about states that already have nuclear weapons. Um, Pakistan is one of them. You know, and for a period of time, uh, uh, you know, seven or eight or nine years ago, it was the fashionable thing to be very worried about Pakistan. And now we seem to have lost all interest in that. Is that because everything I is just so nice is and stable now fashionable. that we don't need to worry? I think it is still fashionable and that we actually ought to be a lot more worried than we are. Pakistan is the problem, the most a dangerous problem we are not paying attention to because they're continuing to build their nuclear weapons. The, the progress towards civilian control of the military has been arrested. The advance of um, extremists continues in their country. The ability of the security forces to secure their territory or even their major cities uh, is uh, certainly not increasing their willingness to be helpful in tamping down uh, al-Qaeda and the Taliban and ISIS where they occur in the neighborhood has continues to diminish. This, this is a problem getting worse, not getting better. Well, I think that is just the right happy note to end this podcast <laughs> on. I mean, we really like to always end on an apocalyptic note, and that I think you've struck it, Corey. So thank you, Corey. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Jeffrey. I'm staying in this third sub-basement. I don't know about you. You're Rosa. welcome to stay in the third sub-basement. Um, next week, we will be back uh, with a special total solar eclipse totality version of Deep State Radio. Uh, meantime, tell all of your friends about it, and we hope that you will listen again soon. And we'll be back with more Apocalypse coming soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. 
Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.